0: Hello, this is a podcast for the Legal Aid New South Wales Criminal Law Division. Um, My name is Will Tuckey. I'm a barrister practising in New South Wales, and I am with Dr. Peter Ashkar, who is a clinical neuropsychologist.
1: Hello, Will. It's good to be here.
0: Is there such a thing as normal and abnormal brain functioning?
1: Uh, Yes, I think so. Um, uh, Whereas we um, need to take into consideration individual differences and the the natural or or, um, um, uh, common variation in brain functioning that exists within our population, uh, we can certainly um, identify, uh, for example, abnormal brain development uh, that uh, occurs with developmental disorders, for instance, uh, and we can also identify uh, injury to the brain that impacts on behaviour. Uh, later in life as well
0: can you think of a case in which uh, someone has suffered an injury to their brain and their behavior has changed
1: uh, I spend my life working on those types of cases uh, there is a classic case um, in clinical neuropsychology that I think is worthy of mention uh, in relation to that topic and involves uh, a 40 year old uh, man from the United States um, who is otherwise in a normal state of health um, he had no criminal history he all of a sudden developed an interest in pornography and in particular child pornography. He uh, was involved in a relationship and he had a prepubescent stepdaughter. He developed um, a sexual interest in his prepubescent um, stepdaughter, uh, which is what um, brought him to the attention of the authorities. Um, uh, he was diagnosed as, as, as having pedophilia and he was court ordered to participate in the sex offender treatment program um, or go to jail. He failed to uh, participate effectively in the sex offender program because he um, was unable to uh, control his behaviour to the point uh, or sufficiently uh, in such a way that he um, uh, made sexual advances towards uh, the women who were working on the program. He was that disinhibited. Um, He got to the point where he was admitted to hospital with uh, very severe headaches, and long story short, he was diagnosed through brain imaging with a brain tumour on the frontal lobe of his brain. The brain tumour was removed, and all of those behaviours, all of those um, um, sexual impulses, all of those pedophilic tendencies disappeared.
0: So was, was the tumour causing that bad behaviour?
1: Well, that's, that's really a question for the trier of fact. Um, in this particular court case, um, uh, he, the court considered that he was culpable for his behaviour and therefore guilty of the crime, but the tumour uh, was very relevant to mitigation at sentencing.
0: Could you, as a neuropsychologist, say whether he would have done those things or had those interests, if not for the tumour?
1: I think so. Yes, I think so. I think it's, it's quite obvious. And In fact, what I haven't told you is that uh, after the resection of his tumour in 2000, uh, the tumour Um, grew back in 2001, and those pedophilic tendencies and those disinhibited behaviours and sexual impulses towards children came back. The tumour was once again removed, and those tendencies disappeared. So we have a very clear example of cause and effect there.
0: Are there any other examples that you can think of where something that happens to a person's brain can affect their behavior?
1: It's a very classic case of personality change or acquired sociopathy, if you like, uh, in clinical neuropsychology. Which What's in- sociopathy? Sociopathy is kind of used interchangeably with the concept of antisocial uh, personality disorder or, or psycho- psychopathy. Um, acquired sociopathy is not psychopathy, um, however. Um, psychopathy, however, um, because psychopathy is something that is not inquir- acquired. It's something that a person is born into. You don't become psychopathic. You are psychopathic.
0: So, how can someone acquire psychopathy?
1: Well, um, uh, a lot of um, a lot of um, um, scientists um, would argue that a person um, uh, can uh, acquire so- sociopathic or antisocial tendencies when. Um, um, the frontal lobe of the brain has been damaged. And a, a classic example of this is, um, an, it's historically a, a, a case that occurred in 1848. It is a classic case in clinical neuropsychology where a 25-year-old uh, foreman uh, of a crew cutting a railroad bed um, in the United States uh, was using a tamping iron to pack an explosive powder into a hole uh, and the powder detonated. And the tamping iron uh, exploded through uh, the left eye and through his the, the left side of, of, of his brain at, at the front um, so he had this catastrophic injury to the frontal lobe of his brain. He survived miraculously uh, but even more um, remarkably after the event he was conscious, he was speaking, there appeared to be no impairment in his intellectual functioning but in the days and weeks that followed, it became very apparent that this man's personality had changed completely. He went from a man who was the foreman, as I mentioned before, who was highly regarded, very responsible uh, and um, very um, sociable to a man who became socially, disappropriate, uh, socially inappropriate uh, to the point of uh, being rude and swearing and, and vulgar. And completely chaotic and unemployable in his behaviour, so there was a real marked change in this man's personality um, that, uh, with uh, that, was completely disassociated from his intellectual functioning. So there was no there was no obvious uh, decline or impairment in his intellectual functioning, but his. Um, his personality had changed in such a way that he became a, a, a really bad guy, for want of a better word. So, that is an example of what um, doctors and scientists would um, describe as acquired sociopathy. Well,
0: what did do the doctors and experts think happened to him?
1: Well, there, well we learned, well, the, doctor, the history has taught us through that case that damage to uh, the frontal lobe of the brain can completely derange a person's ability to control their behaviour. Okay, So, um, the frontal lobes of the brain are the most evolutionarily, if that's a word, advanced part I think of, it is. of the brain. Um, it's what makes us human. It's where our social and moral development sits. Now, when, uh, in particular, the orbitofrontal area of the brain. What we, do
0: you mean by orbitofrontal?
1: Well, it's that part of the brain that um, sits above the orbit of the skull. Which is that part of the skull that sit that that, that encases the, the eyes? So it's the eye sockets. So the orbitofrontal area of the brain sits above the eyes, and it's that part of the brain that is um, primarily responsible for um, social understanding and moral reasoning and judgment. So when that part of the brain is damaged, it's like um, it's like driving a car without brakes. So you. All the other parts of the brain that motivate behavior, motivate feelings and emotions, um, they continue to operate. But the front part of the brain, which, if you like, is the brakes uh, that that help to control that that underlying behavior, they're gone. So it's like driving a car without brakes, if that part of the brain is damaged. And the more severe the damage to the brain, uh, the more wear and tear on the brakes and the less control on the behavior, if that makes sense
0: the study of behavior and and the brain um, quite a number of different fields of expertise have developed over time to look into this haven't they
1: oh there are many are many few I mean neuroscience is a is a huge area Uh, the study we've learnt more about the brain in the last hundred years than we have in the evolution of of man person kind if you like
0: and you're a neuropsychologist
1: yes I'm a neuropsychologist so we're um, we're psychologists who are primarily concerned with understanding the effect of brain disorders on behaviour, uh, and we're particularly interested in um, uh, those higher level uh, mental functions like cognition uh, and emotions um, when um, the brain is damaged.
0: All right, so who else is looking at the brain? There's What's a simple psychologist?
1: Okay, well, a psychologist is, is, is um, um, trained or as an expert, if you like, in, in understanding human behaviour.
0: And, and what, 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 are the, what does that mean?
1: Well, you know, okay, so uh, probably the best way to explain it is to contrast what a psychologist is with perhaps a psychiatrist. So a psychi- psychiatrist, uh, because we're often asked to work on the same cases, for example. So um, for all your solicitors out there who might want to know why or when, they would call a psychologist versus a psychiatrist to do an assessment for them. Well, um, uh, the, the best way to explain the difference is this. Psychologists are trained in uh, and specialized in understanding human behavior. Uh, that's the primary, primary focus of their, of their training. And that involves, obviously, lots of different aspects. Um, but the primary, primary focus of a psychiatrist is um, understanding the biology of the person because they're medical practitioners and they're trained as doctors and they have um, an expert training and understanding of the physiology and biology of a person. And they use that understanding of physiology and biology to understand behavior. Now, psychologists have some training in biology and physiology, and clinical neuropsychologists have a lot of training in understanding how the brain works. But um, behavior is much more than biology and physiology. Behaviour is also very much about social factors and environmental factors and that is the difference between a psychologist versus a psychiatrist. Psychologists use a little bit of biology and a lot of social and environmental factors to explain behaviour and to understand behaviour, whereas a psychiatrist uses a little bit of social stuff, a little bit of environmental stuff, but a whole lot of biology to understand and explain behaviour. Now both, both complement each other, and one is not necessarily better than the other, but it's just that we come from uh, a different starting point, if you like, to uh, understand why a person may do what they do, especially in a criminal context.
0: Are there different types of psychologists?
1: There are many different types of psychologists. Um, there are sports psychologists, there are Educational psychologists, there are clinical psychologists, there are forensic psychologists, there are clinical neuropsychologists. Uh, So there, it's psychology and the understanding of human behaviour is a a massively diverse and wide-ranging field of study, which is why it is, you know, nobody can become expert across the whole field and that's why there are so many different specialties and subspecialties of psychology.
0: What's the difference between a clinical psychologist and a forensic psychologist?
1: Well clinical psychologists typically work in hospital settings, they typically work um, very closely with psychiatrists to to treat psychiatric disorders. Um, So a, a clinical psychologist has advanced training in the assessment and non-medical or non-biological treatment of psychiatric conditions.
0: And a forensic psychologist? Sorry?
1: Okay, well a forensic psychologist um, has advanced training in uh, uh, in the legal system. So we actually uh, do a bit of training in law. Uh, We understand how the legal system works, probably a little bit better than most other psychologists because that's part of our training. And we also uh, are trained to work with uh, people who have committed crimes
0: and you know how to write a report? Uh,
1: No, I don't think that comes with um, basic training. I think that comes from experience. Yeah.
0: When you look at a uh, psychologist versus psychiatrist, um, are there different disorders that each
1: of those people deals with? Um, No, I think we both look, I think the short answer to that question is that um, both psychiatrists and psychologists tend to, to look at the same disorders but from a different perspective and in, and in a complementary way. So for example, um, given uh, the expertise of the psychiatrist with the biology and physiology of the individual um, and the biological treatment of conditions, um, contrasted with the, the social and environmental understanding of the psychologist that um, is brought to bear on understanding an individual's behavior When you combine the two, what you get is a a much more effective and comprehensive understanding of the individual, which is why psychologists and psychiatrists very often work so closely together.
0: So when you went to university, you decided you wanted to be a psychologist? Yes. And you studied psychology? Yes. And then at some stage, you decided you wanted to specialize in forensic psychology?
1: I did. My dear mother wanted me to be a lawyer. Um, but I never really wanted to be a lawyer. Who would? Uh, <laughs> but I, I, it, it kind of inspired an interest in the law, and I'd always been very interested in the law. So when I, when I got to the point of going to university, I was a little bit challenged about where I would go and what I would do. I, For various reasons that I won't go into now, I, now I pursued psychology. Uh, but when I got the opportunity to uh, incorporate uh, some legal training into my work and my interest in law with my psychology, there was there was uh, no question for me about what area I would, would come to specialise in and that became forensic psychology, primarily because of my um, strong interest in the law.
0: You practised as a forensic psychologist for a number of years?
1: I did for a lot of years, uh, I, well I continue to, but um, I, I started out as a forensic psychologist and I, I did my phd in forensic psychology as well um and uh, what was that in i um the phd looked at uh really specialized in in trying to understand the environmental and social determinants of um, um serious adolescent offending behavior so i worked with a lot of the a lot of the kids that were at carryong at the time a lot of the serious young offenders who had committed violent and sexual offenses uh and were um Uh, And I looked into their lives and their histories and I looked at all the social stuff that contributed to getting them to the point where they committed those really serious crimes. And that was what my my PhD was about.
0: But then at some stage, you decided you wanted to spend more money and get another degree and more study to become a neuropsychologist.
1: Well, I did. It it was kind of interesting the way it happened because I I sort of um, kind of... um, um, I felt a little bit empty after completing my PhD because I kind of felt that only half of my education had been completed at that point. I knew a lot about uh, the social and environmental uh, factors that contributed to offending behavior, but what I lacked um, understanding of was the um, biological and um, brain-based relationships that contributed or, or, or brain functioning or neurological functioning or biological factors, I suppose, more broadly, that um, are equally uh, as important in understanding criminal behaviour. And that that sense of emptiness in my education, um, kind of, or incompleteness, rather, in my education, kind of um, uh, coincided with uh, referrals that I was getting at the time from solicitors and barristers wanting to know from me um, if, the brain injuries that they had seen or they had become aware of in their clients were in any way significant in understanding uh, the offending behaviour of, of, of those clients. And so uh, it was uh, a really easy decision for me to then go off and study clinical neuropsychology so I could learn more about the brain and how it worked and how it impacted on behaviour because I was getting those referrals from solicitors at the time.
0: Now we've looked at um, psychologists uh, neuropsychologists, Mm -hmm. psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. What's a neurologist?
1: Okay. Well, neurologists are also medical practitioners, just like psychiatrists are. Um, neurologists like psychiatrists are experts in the biological functioning of the human body. In the case of neurologists, their focus is really on understanding how the nervous system works, which includes the brain, Uh, But it extends beyond the brain and beyond mental functioning into the spinal cord and peripheral nervous system. Uh, A a neurologist will generally focus on the physical manifestations of neurological disorders such as movement, sensation, uh, balance, uh, stuff like pain and weakness and vision, among other things. Um, They... um, might be i mean there. are i mean the brain is so complex and so complicated and clinical neuropsychologists tend to function on those high level mental functions that are conscious things like attention concentration memory um, and those high order uh, executive skills that um, help us to uh, regulate and control our behavior as people um, but neurologists tend not so much to focus on those types of things they tend to focus on automatic functions that can be compromised by damage to the brain um, but they tend to focus on um, you know um, those um, physical as i say manifestations of neurological disorders as opposed to the the um, psychological manifestations of mental disorders if you like now having said that there are some neurologists who specialize in behavioral neurology Uh, And that um, uh, is very similar to what uh, a clinical neuropsychologist would do. What does neuro mean? Neuro means the brain. It means neuron. You know, the brain is made up of neurons. The brain is made up of a hundred billion neurons
0: yes are there any other neuro people like what's a neurosurgeon
1: well there's neuro everything neuro is a flavor of the month it has been for the last five or ten years there are neuroscientists there there is there's neuro linguistics there's neuro this there's neuro that it's the real buzzword and the reason why neuro is the new buzzword is because people technology is allowing us to look at the brain in ways that we haven't been able to look at it before it's allowing um uh And through that technology and through that improved understanding, we are coming to appreciate more and more and increasingly how significant the brain is in explaining everything that is human and what we do.
0: As a uh, a neuropsychologist, what are the major types of issues that you're dealing with?
1: Well, as a neuropsychologist, we're particularly interested in understanding how abnormal development of the brain or injury to the brain affects behaviour.
0: What's the difference between development and injury?
1: Well, um, uh, okay, it's the uh, developmental... Um, development refers to, uh, well it's operationalized if you like, as the first 18 years of life. So if you think of a, a child who is born or, or an infant that is born, they grow up to become an adult, but that first 18 years of life is considered the developmental period. Okay, so um, people can be born with um, conditions, um, genetic conditions that interfere with the normal development of, of the individual, such as Down syndrome for example. Um, Down syndrome is associated with intellectual impairments. Now not all people with Down syndrome um, share the same uh, quality of intellectual functioning if you like because there's great variability but most people with Down syndrome have uh, reduced intellectual functioning. Um, Some people can be born with an intellectual disability for example which can be particularly relevant uh, in the criminal setting. Uh, Other people can um, be born with neurological conditions such as epilepsy uh, that can interfere with the development of the brain during that 13, the first 18 years of life, so through that developmental period, which can affect how they behave as adults and later in life. Um, so uh, developmental conditions are those conditions that are congenital, so they occur at birth or are pre-programmed, um, at conception and appear um, at birth and beyond. Um, developmental conditions can also um, be con- uh, can can uh, those types of si- can occur in those types of situations where a child is born healthy and they might have a brain injury uh, during the first eighteen years of their life, and that brain injury interferes with the normal development of their brain. Uh, throughout that first 18 years of life, so a person doesn't have to be born with it; it can be acquired during that developmental period. But um, it will interfere with the normal development of that individual during that 18 first 18 years of their life.
0: All right. So let's look at some of these things. Uh, an intellectual disability. What's that?
1: Well, intellectual disability is really, technically, diagnostically, is a person with subaverage intelligence. So if you think of average intelligence uh, as being a number um, around uh, at the hundred mark, um, most lawyers. So most lawyers, my most lawyer. Well, most lawyers I know are probably a little bit stronger than a hundred. Um, some, however, I know are probably a little bit less than a hundred, but. Uh, in all seriousness, uh, intellectual disability is diagnostically defined as a person with subaverage intellectual functioning, extremely low intellectual functioning. So, if you give that a number, it appear it's around about the 70 or below mark, um, uh, when um, uh, normal average intelligence is at, at the hundred point. Okay, I don't like using numbers to explain intelligence because intelligence is a really complex um, construct. Um, but it is most simply understood as a number, 100 is normal, um, and 70 is abnormal.
0: When you talk about numbers, do they come from testing?
1: They come from psychological tests, yes. Which tests? Uh, Well, there are a range of psychological tests that um, have been developed to measure intellectual functioning. Um, The Wexler Scales are probably the most widely used scales um, for measuring intellectual functioning. Um, intellectual functioning is operationalized in those tests as a measure of a person's attention and concentration skills, their uh, ability and speed of information processing, uh, their ability to process visual information. So um, all of those um, uh, aspects of a person's cognitive functioning are kind of lumped together into a single number um, to um, uh, provide a... A quantitative measure of that individual's inter- level of intellectual functioning. Then there are lots of problems with that.
0: And what differs between a psychologist and a neuropsychologist in looking at intellectual disability?
1: Well, um, all psychologists can measure, inter- or should all psychologists should be able to measure intellectual functioning. And that's part of our basic training. Okay, the neuropsychologist looks well beyond intellectual functioning into. Because intellectual functioning is just a very, very narrow way of trying to understand what a person can and cannot do mentally and cognitively. So an assessment of intellectual functioning really tends to just look at a person's, um, as I say, attention and concentration skills, visual um, um, processing skills, Language processing skills and speed of information processing. It doesn't look at memory. It Doesn't look at higher level executive functioning. It doesn't look at um, visual. What's executive functioning? Okay. Uh, executive functioning is uh, is considered to be one of those higher level skills. Um, it's little. Um, uh, it's 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 a little bit hard to describe. But the way I tend to describe it is, uh, it's a quality uh, of. Um, of um, cognition that allows the individual to engage in purposeful, planned, goal-directed behaviours. The quality of a person's executive functioning uh, depends in part on the quality of their intellectual functioning, but the two um, areas of cognition are very, very different. So for example, um, I often use this analogy to, to um, provide a picture of what I mean by an executive. If you think of an executive in an, in an organisation or a corporation, well, perhaps you can tell me, what, it, what, what does an executive do in a, in, a, in a corporation?
0: It earns a lot of money.
1: Earns a lot of money, yes. Um, How do they earn that money?
0: Bosses people around.
1: Bosses people around. So, so they manage and control and supervise people. They coordinate people. They coordinate the people under them uh, to make sure that everything is, is flowing smoothly. Okay. Um, so, I often use the example of a conductor in front of an orchestra. If you think of intellectual functioning as being those components of the, of the orchestra, such as the, um, the wind section, the... Um, oh, I've got to think of my sections of an orchestra. So, you've got the, you've got the, the wind section, which is oboes and flutes and clarinets and percussion. all of that. You've got percussion. You've got string. You've got the string section. You've got the um, keyboard section, maybe. I don't know, uh, it's been a while since I've been to a, to a, uh, a, a symphony. But you, you have all to... these members of the orchestra. Um, they're all playing together, uh, and they're all separate, and they're all individuals. So you have all these different intellectual qualities, if you like, but at the front of the orchestra is the conductor, and the conductor is there coordinating, telling telling the violinist when to play, when to not play, coordinating the the entire um, performance, if you like. And, and, that, is, a... and that is what... Um, uh, it, uh, the executive part of the, or, or that part of the brain that controls executive functioning does with the individual. It helps to, the individual to coordinate, regulate, self-monitor, inhibit, and, and control their behaviour and adapt their behaviour to the situation that they're in. So I spoke before about the guy who worked on the railroad who had the tamping iron explode through his head. He lost that part of his brain that was primarily responsible for executive functioning. So he was no longer able to self-regulate his behaviour, monitor his behaviour, control his behaviour. His intellectual functioning was intact so all those individual pieces of the orchestra were still there but the conductor at the front of the orchestra was not there anymore.
0: So you can look at development disabilities, can include intellectual disability, uh, learning disorders, what's, what's a learning disorder?
1: Well, learning disorder occurs when, um, I'm not sure how relevant learning disorders are necessarily to uh, criminal matters, but a learning disorder occurs when a person might have normal intellectual functioning, but they're, they're not performing in terms of achievement at school. So dyslexia would be an example of a learning disorder.
0: Mm-hmm and there are other disorders such as
1: autism autism is a big one and autism is very relevant to criminal matters because uh, people with autism spectrum disorders often do not understand what other people are thinking and feeling they they tend to lack or they, they absolutely lack what we call a theory of mind so they have great difficulty appreciating the perspective of other people they have difficulty putting themselves in another person's shoes and that can really affect how they interact socially with people and what they do in terms of their behaviour. And that can be very relevant in understanding um, offending behaviour in people with autism spectrum disorders.
0: What sort of expert's best looking at a person with autism spectrum
1: disorder? Oh, well, I would probably, I would, uh, psychologists are great, psychiatrists are great. The thing is, people with autism-
0: psychologists are better?
1: Uh, with the autism spectrum disorder is a developmental disorder, so I would ask for a clinical psychologist or a clinical neuropsychologist. But if you want to the thing is with autism spectrum disorders, um, the, um, the, the uh, communication or social and communication deficits are the hallmark of people with autism spectrum disorders. Now intellectual functioning may or may not be impaired and impairment of intellectual and cognitive functioning may be very relevant to um, uh, criminal matters involving people with autism spectrum disorders. Whenever cognition is important in understanding what is going on with a client in a criminal matter, whenever, regardless of the disorder, you needed clinical neuropsychologists to conduct that assessment because only clinical neuropsychologists have that expert training in the measurement of, brain, of neurodevelopmental disorders and, and brain injuries to be able to measure and make sense of what is happening cognitively and behaviourally with the individual.
0: What, what is cognition?
1: Cognition is um, thinking, mental processing. Um, Everyone
0: can do that. What are you? We all do
1: that. So when we talk about cognition, we talk about um, how we process information. Uh, and the processing of information involves attention, concentration, um, um, how, how quickly we can take in information and make sense of it. Uh, it involves memory and how well memory works. Memories are really re- one of the, the most common referral questions I get uh, from solicitors is uh, assessment of memory. Um, uh, individual, solicitors very often and particularly with um, older individuals where um, dementia might be a, a, a question or a concern where clients say well I can't remember um, clients who have been accused of X, Y and Z might say to their solicitor well I, I don't remember now uh, more often than not their lack of memory for the event is, is due to substance use at the or time they're or they're lying or they're lying and In a a small handful of cases, it is general memory impairment that can be attributed to um, age-related cognitive decline or uh, abnormal um, um, cognitive decline that could be associated with a type of dementia. And whenever dementia is a possible issue, um, you must get, well, if, if you well, there are no musts and there are no shoulds, but the best person to assess for memory decline in uh, within the context of a possible dementia is certainly a clinical neuropsychologist
0: what other conditions is, Are there genetic conditions
1: uh, well uh, yes um, if a solicitor has a client with uh, for example um, I had a Prada-willie syndrome uh, referral uh, last year so Prada-willy is a syndrome where it's a, it's a it's a genetic condition uh, where, Um, the individual has um, very, very, very impaired intellectual functioning, and they have this, um, um, uh, 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 they have this insatiable appetite for eating, and they can't control and regulate their behavior. No, not like you will, no. Uh, These are simply, these are people who will have this oral fixation, they will just eat everything that they can get their hands on, and they cannot turn it off. They're constantly hungry, and they're always grossly overweight, and they they simply cannot control that impulse. Uh, there are a whole lot of other features that accompany Prader-Willi syndrome, but it is a it is a genetic condition. It is more often than not associated with severe intellectual and cognitive impairments. And, <coughs> excuse me, and. Um, um, most people with Prader-Willi syndrome simply cannot form intent to commit a crime and it's very important um, whenever a person with Prader-Willi... What type of crime? Well, well, people with Prader-Willi syndrome could commit all sorts of crimes, I suppose, um, but should they be held criminally responsible if they don't know what they're doing was wrong? You know, that's the question. Can they form the intent? Do they have the mens rea? Something to do with eating. Something to do with eating? Eating is just a symptom of the disorder. What I'm talking about with Prader-Willi syndrome is the compromise to their intellectual functioning. Yeah.
0: What other sorts of things might constitute a de- developmental dis- disability?
1: Okay, uh, developmental disabilities can be caused by genetic factors. They can also be caused by um, what we call teratogenetic ter-, ter-, ter. I can't say it. Um, teratogens. Uh, teratogen. Teratogen, teratogen is uh, something toxic that affects development during, um, during, uh, during uh, the um, um, fetal developmental period. So it's an environmental factor that can impact on the normal development of the fetus uh, during gestation and um, prenatal development, if Anything you like. English? And in English, well, okay, a classic example of that might be uh, FASD, which is Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder. So if a parent is using drugs or alcohol during pregnancy, okay, and this is can be a huge problem because uh, especially in Australia, well, not necessarily Australia, but throughout the world, but um, very often um, um, uh, we're a drinking culture in Australia, rightly or wrongly, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I've never touched the stuff. <laughs> uh but um, the problem with um, um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is that lots of very well-intentioned, you know, I don't, I, I just, what, what I want, what I'm trying to say is there's no judgment here because a lot of mothers who fall pregnant uh, dr- drink alcohol uh, before, uh, uh, without knowing that they're pregnant, and their alcohol use during that, that, that stage of gestation and uh, prenatal development can have a uh, can have a really serious impact on. Fetal development, and there's a window uh, within the first three months, in particular, uh, where uh, the developing fetus and the brain of the developing fetus is particularly vulnerable to the teratogenic ter- 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 effects of alcohol. So um, we also, of course, there are also, of course, parents who. Um, um, have an alcohol problem, for example, and they will drink alcohol throughout the pregnancy and that can uh, be toxic to the uh, neurological development of the fetus and that can result in what we uh, now refer to as fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And those children present um, uh, what we call a heterogeneous group of individuals. They um, uh, are very um, varied in how they present intellectually and cognitively and physically, um, but typically they, um, off, they have um, cognitive difficulties and difficulties with the regulation of, of their behavior. They're often misdiagnosed as having attention deficit uh, disorder, but in actual fact, uh, the problems that they have as children and as infants and as adults uh, can be tied back to uh, the, um, the toxic effects of the parent's alcohol use uh, in utero, while they were in utero,
0: and other uh, developmental disabilities.
1: What? Okay. Well, sometimes, uh, for example, cerebral palsy can be uh, a child might be born with cerebral palsy, which might affect their. What, what is that? Cerebral palsy is just um, uh, it's a it's a it's a, um, a developmental disorder that affects movement. Uh, a person with cerebral palsy might have very normal intellectual functioning, but they have, might have very little control of how they um, move their body. It can be caused by hypoxic injuries. It can also be caused by genetic conditions, and it can also be caused by unknown factors. So there, there's a whole, um, it's not entirely clear um, what um, specifically causes um, a person to have um, cerebral palsy, but um, the, the, the root to cerebral palsy can be multifactorial. What's a hypoxic injury? Hypoxic injury is an injury that occurs whether in utero, in childhood, or in, um, in, in adult develop- later in adult life where there is a lack of oxygen to the brain. So um, brain cells, neurons need oxygen. The brain needs oxygen. We can't function without oxygen. If we're deprived of oxygen for more than about four minutes, the, 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 the cells in our brain start to die. And that, that can have um, permanent and catastrophic consequences for... Um, for um, how we behave
0: are there any other developmental conditions that you study
1: um, well epilepsy is developmental condition kids can be born with epilepsy for example epilepsy is the uh, uncontrolled and abnormal firing of electricity if you like in the brain but that can get, that can um, be very um, um, toxic if you like to Um, that can kill brain cells, it can lead to hypoxia, it can lead to a lack of oxygen, because typically when a person has a seizure, they're not breathing, that can lead to the death of brain cells and that can cause um, problems with cognition uh, later on in life. Uh, There's also, um, goodness me, um, there's also also cancers that can occur during the developmental period that can impact on on a person's uh, ability to control their behavior. There are also strokes that can impact. In fact, actually, I should step back, take a step back. Childhood cancer is the biggest killer of children, medically, of all disease known to to us. So that's how most children die for medical reasons, due to to, uh, childhood cancer. Um, Those who survive may be um, left with quite serious um, cognitive impairments later in life which uh, need to be understood if these people um, fall or come to be involved in the criminal justice system later in life.
0: So, neurological conditions can be developmental.
1: Yes, so when I say developmental, like I mentioned before, occurring within the first 18 year of life, when the brain is growing and developing really, really rapidly, um, the brain doesn't actually stop developing and changing throughout life, but, I guess the the main functions of the brain are pretty much uh, developed by the age of about twenty five years. Uh, there was a school of thought um, quite some time ago. It's an old school of thought now that um, the brain was immutable and did not change, um, and that um, you were born. The brain cells that you were born with would be the brain cells that you would die with. You would there wouldn't be new brain cells replacing old brain cells or anything like that. Uh, with the advances in uh, neuroscience that are available to us today. Uh, the research is very clear. The brain is plastic, it changes, it adapts, it grows, um, but the, the basic functions of the brain do not change. And they're pretty much set in stone, um, set in stone um, uh, within the first 25 years of life. So that's a really important um, um, point to make um, in the sense that um, forensically and in criminal context, uh, because a lot of people, for example, that you might, that might sort of, uh, a lot of cases that might fall onto your desk, uh, and certainly that, that fall on mine, involve people who uh, might um, have, um, might not have a developmental history of, dis- of brain disorder, but they might um, typically, uh, and often, um, hit substances pretty hard, start drinking alcohol at the age of 12, 13, 14, smoke cannabis, start doing drugs, harder drugs like methamphetamine, um, you know, when they're 14, 15, 16. Um, and even if they're not doing those, those horrible illicit drugs, they might be hitting alcohol really, really heavily, um, you know, from about the age of 12, 13, 14. And alcohol is neurotoxic to the brain and it's particularly neurotoxic to the brain when the brain is developing. Doesn't matter so much if you hit the brain hard with alcohol once the, the functions of the brain have sort of settled into place and are functioning and developing, but uh, have developed. But if you interfere with that course of development, um, the, those functions may not actually um, um, have um, um, sort of found their proper place and proper function um, uh, with, with, with that alcohol abuse. Uh, during that developmental period, which is why um, it can be really, it's, it's usually very, very important to take a, take a substance use history from a client um, to determine uh, if um, substance use may be an important factor in uh, explaining um, a neurologically based abnormal behavior later in life. So,
0: people can get through their first 18 years not have any problems but then something happens what is an acquired
1: issue we've well, kind of um you kind of provided the definition of an acquired brain injury so outside of that developmental period if there's an insult or injury to the brain that's considered to be an acquired brain injury that might include a stroke and um, might include a traumatic brain injury so for example a whack on the head a um, a big whack? Or a little whack. Oh no, a big whack. Uh, w- I don't worry, w- uh, wouldn't worry about a little whack to the head. In fact, I wouldn't worry about any whacks to the head unless there was at least a 30 minute period of loss of consciousness or um, a day of disruption to memory.
0: Mm. Tell us about the Glasgow
1: Coma Scale. <sighs> okay, well, the Glasgow Coma Scale is a measure of consciousness um, and it just helps us to understand. Who's uh, us? It helps. Um, practitioners, doctors, psychologists, whoever, who happens to be managing the patient, uh, understand how severe the injury to the head was. So um, uh, in the context of a traumatic brain injury, a loss of consciousness, the Glasgow Coma Scale measures things like eye movement, verbal responses, and motor responses. Uh, And um, the the measure, ultimately results in a possible total score of 15 based on how the person responds to eye movements, verbal movements and motor responses. A Glasgow Coma scale score of 13 to 15 is indicative of a mild disturbance to consciousness, so uh, there might be some immediate um, effects but they're likely to be transient and they're likely to disappear. Um, then there is um, a score of 8 to 15 or nine to, 9 to 13 is um, considered to be a moderate uh, disturbance to consciousness and it is possible in cases such as that that there might be um, some more enduring and long term impacts um, to the brain that might be relevant in a criminal context and a score of eight or below essentially uh, uh, is synonymous with coma, it's it's um, indicative of a severe traumatic brain injury and uh, there are very likely to be long-term consequences um, resulting from that injury based on that Glasgow Coma Scale score. Now there are lots of caveats that need to be um, need to be added to that interpretation so for example um, many people who have brain injuries are often um, are often impacted by uh, the effects of medication and uh, alcohol and other substances when they have injuries. So the impairment to consciousness may not necessarily be the result of the brain injury, it could be the result of their substance use. So it's a very uh, crude measure of um, damage to the brain and uh, a, a thorough history needs to be taken and a complete understanding of, of situational factors needs to be incorporated into the interpretation of the Glasgow Coma Scale to evaluate the, the severity of brain injury based on that score, if that makes sense.
0: So that's to do with the
1: um, well, injury about, to the brain? Yeah, we're talking about traumatic brain injuries mm. there.
0: What other things are required brain injury?
1: Um, well, just, just to finish on what I, what I was um, talking about there, Uh, The the main measure of, um, uh, and possibly the uh, most important factor for a solicitor to consider when they're interviewing a patient and wondering if their brain injury is significant and may be relevant in that particular legal situation, uh, is to look at what we call post-traumatic amnesia. So post-traumatic amnesia, PTA. PTA, yes, and PTA is a disturbance of consciousness uh, or disturbance of not so much a disturbance of consciousness, but uh, it really, I mean, it is. But it's a disturbance of memory. Um, so PTA refers to um, amnesia that occurs after the injury to the brain. It's that um, um, that it's that um, disturbance of memory that, excuse me, um, interferes with the, the the laying down of new memories. So it's anterograde memory. So it's memory for everything that happens after the injury. Very often, in the case of a traumatic brain injury, a person will not be able to lay down new memories for a while. And it's, uh, that, it's the, the length of that period of the individual not being able to lay down memories that is probably the best predictor of brain injury severity. So um, a person who is unable to lay down new memories or has a disturbance of memory for events following the brain injury um, up to 24 hours is considered to have um, usually uh, considered to have a mild traumatic brain injury. Person who has a disturbance of memory, no sorry, for up to an hour. Up to an hour is would be considered a mild traumatic brain injury. For up to 24 hours would be a moderate traumatic brain injury, and up to a week would be a severe traumatic brain injury. Disturbance of memory, and that is the ability to lay down new memories, uh, up to a month would be considered uh, a very, or more than a month would be considered a very severe traumatic brain injury. So people who experience traumatic brain injuries um, uh, uh, have difficulty, can have difficulties um, recalling and uh, encoding and taking in information that is uh, event information if you like, so they it's almost like that they're asleep for the the hours and days and weeks that follow the injury. okay? And how long they are, you know, in inverted commas, asleep after sustaining that injury is a really good predictor of how severe the brain injury is. So as a solicitor, if you have a client who is knocked on the head uh, and... There is evidence of impaired memory or post traumatic amnesia of less than 24 hours. I wouldn't worry about it. It's not significant. Unless they committed the crime during that 24 hour period, then it might be significant. But in all other ins- and we can talk about that a bit later um, if you like. Because I had have had a couple of cases where a person's been whacked on the head and then they have done something pretty horrible, uh, and the solicitor and the barrister has wanted to know if uh, that if there is um, a case for substantial impairment, for example, based on the disturbance uh, to memory and consciousness at that time. Of being whacked. Of being whacked in the head. Okay. So post post concussion syndrome, if you like. Was there? Pardon me? Was there? Um, okay. Um, uh, the short answer to that question is uh, no. <laughs> no, no. Not in that particular case. Um, but a PTA of less than 24 hours, I wouldn't worry about, or a GCS of 13 to 15. As a solicitor, I wouldn't worry about it because... The, GCS. G- Glasgow Coma Scale score, that, that measure of, uh, of, uh, of altered consciousness uh, following the head injury uh, is nothing to worry about. Because most people who uh, have mild injuries of that nature, as measured by those instruments, um, will go on to recover completely. And, then, and, you can't, uh, and the injury to the brain uh, is, is not relevant in understanding uh, what they may do um, in a criminal context. So right. if a
0: client says they burnt someone's house down, mm-hmm. but they, uh, they got hit on the head when they were 14, and they got knocked out for 12 minutes is that significant
1: wouldn't worry about it
0: so what else can a uh, neuropsychologist tell us about um, acquired brain injury
1: uh, well um i mean there are there are many different types of acquired brain injuries uh if you like so i have been speaking now with you about traumatic brain injuries but a person can have a stroke which can affect their uh, depending on where the stroke occurs in the brain that can affect a person's behavior as well um, i have seen patients who have had um, strokes affecting uh, the connections between um, what we call the subcortical areas of the brain with the frontal areas of the brain Um, um, and a disruption to those connections can uh, be akin to damaging uh, the frontal areas of the brain and can contribute to antisocial and and sociopathic behaviours if you like.
0: What else can cause, um, what else could be described as an acquired brain injury? Um, Well
1: uh, uh strokes cancers um what's
0: cancers what do you mean by cancers
1: well um we spoke earlier uh tonight about uh, the case of the 40 year old man who developed a tumor in the brain that affected his behavior uh as an adult that would be considered the excision of that tumor from the brain would be akin to an acquired brain injury for example
0: what about ageing? Does ageing have an effect on, on brain function?
1: Ageing is, that's a, that's a slightly different one. I wouldn't call that an acquired brain injury. I would call that a, uh, a, a neurodegenerative disorder.
0: What is that?
1: Okay, so we're talking, here we're talking about the dementias.
0: Okay, what's dementia?
1: Okay, so dementia is an umbrella term, if you like, for, and, and it um, refers to uh, impaired cognitive functioning. Mostly, so a person with dementia um, has um, impairments in one or more areas of their cognitive functioning, whether that be attention or concentration. In Alzheimer's disease, it will typically be memory. What's Alzheimer's disease? Alzheimer's disease is a, um, a neuropathological or neurodegenerative disorder uh, that is uh, that um, um, essentially uh, has the effect of um, Um, abnormal development of proteins building up in the brain and killing neurons.
0: What age is that kicking?
1: Typically at the age of 65 uh, but there is such a condition as pre-senile dementia that can occur um, earlier than the age of 65 and there have been cases of of, of Alzheimer's disease occurring in in people aged in their 30s.
0: So we have developmental disabilities that occur within the first 18 years? Yes. Or prenatal?
1: and prenatally yeah yeah yep, yep.
0: then we've got various disorders that occur or acquired brain injuries that occur through a person's life
1: yes whether that be through the developmental period or after that that 18 years of development
0: yeah and then after 65 we can have sort of a ge- degeneration of the, the mind
1: well neurodegenerative disorders can occur at any age but they, they they occur in adulthood i'm not aware of any cases of neurodegeneration that occur during childhood uh, they do occur uh, they're progressive. They occur during uh, adulthood, usually in the later years of life. The most common one is Alzheimer's disease. Now, uh, Alzheimer's disease typically affects memory and um, spatial awareness and functioning. Um, so, uh, but memory is the cardinal, rapid forgetting is the cardinal feature of a person with Alzheimer's disease. Um, well, or so, someone who doesn't care. Well, most, most neurodegenerative conditions um, affect um, uh, social behaviour, uh, which is um, kind of um, kind of uh, looked after in that part of the brain that we were speaking about before—that that, that the executive part of the brain, so the frontal lobes of the brain—and um, nearly all neurodegenerative disorders impact on executive functioning and social behaviour.